Welcome to the teaching ministry of Magnolia's First. To learn more, visit m1bc.org. Well, we are continuing in our series, Darkness to Light. It's a biographical study on the life of the Apostle Paul as recorded in the book of Acts. And we're not taking every verse of Acts, but we're just selecting episodes from Paul's life. And in our last episode, we saw Paul and Silas on Paul's second missionary journey. And we saw him rescued from the dark, dank dungeon of a Roman prison by an earthquake, and that was not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle was the, the lives and souls of the Philippian jailer and all of his family were saved that day. And it was, a, I, I thought, a great part of Paul's story. But now the story moves forward. Paul and Silas uh, are moving on to Thessalonica, and then they preach the gospel there, and Jews and Greeks uh, are both saved and become Christ's followers and a church is established, and it is a church that Paul would write two letters, at least two that we still have recorded as First and Second Thessalonians. He wrote those letters from the city of Corinth. Uh, and so we pick up uh, the story in Acts chapter 17, verse 10, and the curtain opens. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea, when they arrived there, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now, we said that there was a church established there. Many people believed, and that's absolutely true. But the rest of the story is many did not believe, and there were Jews that formed a, a mob and started a riot, and that's the reason that Paul and Silas moved on. It's kind of like the Holy Spirit used their opponents to move them from place to place. And now they're in Berea. Verse 11, and the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message. They searched the Scriptures day after day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Now, the Scriptures referred to here are the Old Testament Scriptures. They did not yet have the New Testament. It was being written in their lifetime. It would not come together uh, for many years as what we know as the canon of Scripture of the New Testament, the collection of New Testament uh, records and letters that the Holy Spirit would bring about to be Holy Scripture. And so the Scriptures that they were searching to check out Paul's message were the messianic prophetic passages of the Old Testament. And Paul was showing them how Jesus was indeed the fulfillment of those messianic prophecies. And he invited them to believe in him. And that's what we do today at our church. We proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who died on the cross for our sins, who was raised on the third day, and who will come again. Hallelujah. And we invite people to believe in Him every Sunday. In fact, every day. That's what we are about as a New Testament church. And if you're watching online or here in the room and you're not yet a Christ follower, we would invite you with all of our hearts to trust in Jesus today. Because none of us have the promise of tomorrow. 
And so this is the best day in your life to trust in Jesus. Amen? The best day. And so that's what Paul did. And there was a response to his message. Verse 12. As a result, many Jews believed, as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. You see, there was a spiritual dynamic at work in that day, in our episode today, that's still at work today. And it's seen in our lives as Christ followers. It's our big idea for today's message. When we tell the story, the story of Jesus, lives and eternities are changed. It's the most important thing we can do. It's what Paul was all about. But it does not always come easily. Verse 13. But when some Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul onto the coast, while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Then they returned to Berea with instructions for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. So envision this moment in the story. Here is the Apostle Paul, for now alone, as far as a Christ follower is concerned, alone in the city of Athens. Now let's get a little bit of context of the city of Athens in the first century just for the, the feeling of our story. Athens in the fourth and fifth century BC was the center of the ancient world. It was the, the place of great commerce. It was the place of uh, political power. It, it was the city. But now by the first century, that's not all true anymore. Corinth has become the city of political and commercial business and government. But Athens has remained the cultural and artistic center of the world. That's the, the climate, that's the culture of Athens. And the statement that we sometimes hear about our state capital, you ever heard this, keep Austin weird? They could have had as their slogan, keep Athens weird. Because that's the kind of city that Paul finds himself today. And on the other hand, understand not only the environment, understand Paul. Paul had grown up in Judaism. He had become a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul was 1,000% monotheistic. That means Paul believed with every fiber of his being there was only one God, one true God. And he goes into this city where there are gods, little g's, everywhere. Everywhere you look around you in Athens, there's an idol of some kind. Uh, they could have had a god of the week in Athens, and they would have run out of weeks in the year before they would run out of gods. That's the kind of environment uh, that, it, that it was. And so see Paul's response, verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. 
Now what's translated here deeply troubled doesn't do justice to the, the original Greek word. It really means he was disgusted. He was infuriated. He, he was angry at the, the falsity of all of these false gods and ideologies. Why? Because Paul, perhaps more than anyone else, knew how destructive a false god was to the human heart and soul. And so this was, uh, he was repudiated by all that he saw. And here's the issue. When people don't know the one true God, it opens up unlimited possibilities for illegitimate substitutes for him. And that's still true today. And maybe you've heard this statement before. I've heard it all my life. There is a hole in every human heart that only God can fill. Only God can fill. And yet, still today, people try to fill it with all different kinds of false gods, maybe not even realizing they're false gods, little g. Whether it's communism or socialism or false religions or cults or New Age or Eastern mysticism or any of these kinds of, uh, of things, even the occult. But the most common of all, I'm convinced, is when people decide to be their own God. To be their own God. To say, nobody can tell me what to do. I have my rights. I bow to no one, not even God. So picture it. Paul wades into this jungle of idolatry, this citadel of darkness with the light of the gospel. It's one man against the city, but that one man has the truth. Verse 17, he went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Now what's translated here, the public square, was a place called the Agora. Uh, it was the central marketplace, it was uh, the hub of the city, and not only would people go there to purchase goods and, and to do business, but it was also a place they would gather to discuss ideas. And we'll see later on in the text, this was a, a very popular activity in the city of Athens. And they would uh, for hours on end, discuss and debate philosophies and ideas. And Paul entered into the midst of that, verse 18. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. I'll explain that in a moment. When he told them about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what is this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said, he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Well, first of all, you need to understand, almost no one in Athens believed in the resurrection of the dead, or even the afterlife. But Paul engaged two particular kinds 
of philosophical groups here, the Epicureans. Uh, they believed that there were many gods out there, but they were somewhere far in the distance, and they didn't relate to, to human beings at all, so they were irrelevant to real life. The Stoics, on the other hand, believed there were gods everywhere, in everything, in a, in a rock or a tree or a stream or any part of nature, that there were gods somehow in there and that there were gods, little g, inside of every human being. They just saw gods everywhere, but that they were of no real benefit to human life. And so when Paul talked about the resurrection of the dead, they called him a a babbler. Now the term uh, here is a very derogatory term in the Greek. Uh, that term would have called up an image uh, for the Athenians of, of some chicken picking up seed in a barnyard. I mean, uh, just an, an ignorant animal with no ability to reason, and reason was everything to the Athenians. They were insulting Paul in the worst way they knew how. And yet, they still wanted to hear more. That, that's just the way their minds work. Verse 19, then they took him to the high council, and I'll come back to that term, the high council of the city. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. The word uh, translated here, high council, uh, is the Areopagus. And the Areopagus was both a location, Mars Hill, and an Athenian high court, a group of leaders that sometimes would meet for legal uh, proceedings and other times meet just to, to discuss what was going on in the city. So both the New Living and even the NIV believe, the scholars that translated that, that the term here means not just the location, but the group, the, the group of leaders that Paul would gather with to talk about the one true God. Let me just stop here and, and relate to you a, an experience. In 2007, Cindy and I had the privilege of taking a, a group from our church on what was called Steps of Paul tour. And we went to places that Paul started churches like Corinth and uh, Philippi and Thessalonica. And our tour also took us to Athens. And I will never forget when we made our way to Mars Hill. And I stood on Mars Hill, Mars Hill somewhere near where the Apostle Paul would have gathered with this group. And I was able to read Paul's message from Acts 17 that will begin in our text in just a few moments. What a thrill that was. And I remembered how moved I was at the boldness of Paul because it was easy for me that day to read that message from the Word of God to a group of Christ followers who know and love him. But Paul was among people who didn't know him, who didn't love him and some who were hostile to the message. But Paul was faithful to proclaim it. Here was their response, verse 20. You, you are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. 
And here's the parenthetical statement, verse 21. It should be explained that all the Athenians as well as the foreigners in Athens seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. That's who they were. They weren't believers, but they were inquisitive people. And I want you to see the genius way, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that Paul was able to connect with them, to understand who they were, and to use that understanding to build a bridge. You see, to tell our Lord's story well, we must seek to understand the people to whom we're telling it so that God might show us how to build a bridge into their minds and their hearts to cast away the darkness and show them the light. So back to the text, verse 22. So Paul, standing before the council, addresses them as follows. And here is his message. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, to an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. Now stop here for a moment and just ask yourself, why would they have an altar with the inscription to an unknown God? Because there were hundreds of gods that they had named throughout the city. Because even in the midst of, of their multi-theism, there was something deep inside that told them that they had not met the one true God yet. And so Paul begins by telling them that he has the answer to that question. You see, even those who don't know God... Even those that you know that seem to be antagonistic and, and uninterested in the, in the gospel, there's something down deep inside of them that tells them there's something missing in their life. And that something is really a someone. Paul goes on to explain who he is. Verse 24, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. And human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. He's saying to them, you're worshiping gods that you have made with your own hands. They're, they're nothing. They're inanimate objects. But the one true God is greater and more powerful and more majestic and more glorious than you can even imagine. And that's so important because only when we understand how glorious our God is, can we understand how great His grace is toward us? That sustaining grace that we heard so beautifully sung a few moments ago. Verse 26, For from one man He created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and He determined their boundaries. 
Paul is saying, there are not many gods, there is but one God, and he created mankind. From Adam has come the entire human race. And he did not abandon his creation, but he holds the course of human history in his hands. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. Oh, but not only that, he is merciful. He is redeeming. He is loving. Verse 27, his purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. I believe when it says here, it was his purpose for the nations to seek. He's not talking about the governmental entities, America or, or Great Britain or, or what have you. He's talking about the people of the nations, the individuals of every nation, every race, every person on earth. It is his will for them to seek after God. And Romans 1 tells us that to know our God is... is so easy. He evidences himself in all of his creation. And what Paul wants them to know is that central to the story of Jesus is that he loves us and he wants to have a relationship with us. Isn't that what John 3.16 is all about? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. It's the message of the gospel. And so I say to each one of us here, and each one listening, whoever you are, whatever you have done, God loves you. His love is not conditional on your performance. The Scripture says we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. This pastor, every deacon in our church, every member of our church, none of us are without sin, and yet God loves us. And no matter who you are or what you have done, God loves you and wants to redeem you and save you from the penalty of your sin through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one true God who has all power and He is everywhere at every moment. Verse 28, For in Him we live and move and exist. As some of your own poets have said, He says to them that day, We are His offspring. We are all His creation we have all been created in His image. Verse 29, And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. The message of the gospel is a message of love. And yet it is also, and we'll see this in Paul's sermon as it continues, it is also a message of warning for those who refuse to hear, for those who refuse to believe, for those who would ignore or reject the love of God made known through Jesus Christ. 
And if you're someone who's still trying to fill that hole in your heart with something else, if you continue on that path, there will come a day you will deeply regret that. He calls you to come to Him in repentance, turning away from the old life of sin and self, and faith trusting in Him to live a new life as His redeemed follower. Paul gives them a clear and strong and stern warning of the consequences for rejecting God's love and grace. Look at verse 30. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone, everywhere, to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. The gospel that we preach is a message of love. But that message would be incomplete if we were not honest enough to say that for those who reject the love of Christ, for those who turn their back on the gospel, there will come a day of judgment. There will come a day when you stand before a holy God. And if you stand there apart from God's grace, it will not be a great day. It will be an awful day. And we look around at our world and we see all that is happening with pandemics and sickness and, and turmoil in places like Afghanistan and natural disasters in places like Haiti and hurricanes that are coming upon friends. It appears in Louisiana. My heart goes out to them. May we pray for them. And all kinds of, of hurt and pain and suffering and injustice. But one day, that will all come to an end. And we will stand before the righteous judge. And the only thing that will matter is whether or not we have trusted in his one and only Son. Every person will someday be held accountable for what they choose to do with the gospel. Verse 32. When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, we want to hear more about this later. You know, responses that day are like responses today. When the gospel is proclaimed, there are some who believe and come to redemption and become a child of God, but there are others who reject. And there are some who even ridicule and scorn. But the results on both sides will be the same. It will either be salvation by grace through faith or judgment for sin that has never been forgiven and atoned for. Well, verse 33 says... That ended Paul's discussion with them. In other words, when they heard about the resurrection, they, they shut him off there before the, the high council. But others would go on to hear the rest of his message, to hear about Jesus Christ and faith in him. Look at verse 34. But some joined him and became believers. Believers. 
Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, one of the men in the group that day. A woman named Damaris and others with them. I just have to stop here for a moment and make this observation. I think that with only two of the converts being named, to me it's interesting and not accidental that one of them is a man and the other is a woman. And the reason I say that, if you study the history of the early church, you will find that women had prominent roles in the early church you will find that they had a great source of strength. Women like Lydia and others. And you know what? That's still true today. The truth is most churches would be absolutely crippled without the women of great faith in their bodies. It is great women of faith that often make incredible impact for the kingdom of God. Thank God for you. Well, this brings the curtain to a close on this fifth episode in Paul's missionary journeys. But though Athens of the first century is separated from us by more than 20 centuries and half a world of geography, I think there are some parallels for us in our lives today from our story from so long ago. So let me close the message quickly with three takeaways. Three applications for us, three lessons. Here's the first. It is an eternally tragic mistake to create a God that fits your ideas and opinions instead of knowing the God of the Bible through faith in His Son. Now here's what I'm trying to say. Today it is so common that if people don't like something about the God of the Bible, they just decide to change Him. Well, I don't like that. I don't think that. I don't agree with that. And so they just kind of mold and shape their own God. Listen, friends, we don't have that ability. We don't have that right. What we think, what we like, what we want has no bearing upon what is true. And the Word of God, the Scripture, the divine revelation of God to mankind is the only reliable source. So don't make the tragic mistake of trying to mold a God in your own image and worshiping them. Picking bits and pieces out of the Bible that you like and throwing away the parts that you don't like. We come to know God through the Word of God. Believe it. Here's a second takeaway. The gospel of grace is offered freely to everyone. And everyone is responsible for how they respond to a God who loves them. Our God is a God of love. Our God is a God who says, I love you so much, I sent my son because you had a problem You had sin in your life. You could not atone for it. You could not erase it. You could not wipe it out. Only a sinless one could atone for sin, your sin and my sin. And I sent my son to die for you. And that atonement would be credited to your eternal soul if you would just believe in him by faith 
and follow him. The gospel of grace is offered freely to everyone, but everyone is responsible for how they respond. Last lesson. The same message that Paul preached in Athens is the same message that Christ's followers are to take to our world today. I wish the Apostle Paul was still around, don't you? I'd love to sit down and talk with that dude. He, he's one of my heroes of the Scripture. I, 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 w- I would be like a Timothy trying to learn. But he's not. He's not on a missionary journey here on earth anymore. And we've seen other great messengers. I wish Billy Graham was still alive, filling stadiums with people. As a matter of fact, this Wednesday night over in the the chapel in our Wednesday night group, our, our video is going to be on the life of Billy Graham. Even if you're not a regular Wednesday night attender, you might want to come. I I previewed it. It's fascinating. He, too, is one of my heroes. I wish he was still here, but he's not. But you know what? You are. And I am. And we may not be great missionaries or evangelists that go to foreign countries, but God intends for us to be his missionaries right where we are. And I personally don't know of a greater mission field than Magnolia, Texas. It's my favorite one on the planet. And it ought to be ours. And Magnolia needs the gospel. And we are his messengers. Let us be faithful to fulfill our mission. Because when we tell the story, lives and eternities are changed. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the glorious good news that the Apostle Paul preached in that idolatrous city of Athens so long ago. Thank you that we still have that same gospel. And though Magnolia, Texas might not be a city where there are graven images all around us, there are people all around us that do not know our Savior. Lord, help us to be faithful in an humble but Holy Spirit-empowered way to take the good news, to live it out, to give it credibility, and to, to share it with our words as you open those conversational doors and may the influence of our imperfect but committed lives bring credibility to the message that we share. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.